The Articulate Coven is the original, unofficial podcast and fan community for Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire and Anne Rice's Immortal Universe from AMC and AMC+. Welcome to The Articulate Coven, the unofficial podcast for The Vampire Chronicles from Anne Rice, including the upcoming TV series about The Vampire Lestat. We are your hosts. I am Joel Sharpton. I am Ashley Wright Eiler. And we are so glad to be back with you. Uh, no, we have not pod faded. Uh, and, and I'm going to stop apologizing for not recording. We're just going to get these things out what we can and know <laughs> that, uh, and know that when the TV series comes, we will be on a regular schedule. Um, we, you know, we don't know what the release schedule for the TV show is yet. So when we know what night of the week it's going to be on and what season of the year it's going to come out in, then Ashley and I will very quickly work out what schedule we can, can put around that. And then you'll have something regular that you can count on. Uh, but until then, we're going to catch as catch can. And in this episode, Ashley, we are talking about the second novel in the Vampire Chronicles series, The Vampire Lestat. Yes. Uh, or Lestat. I still say it. I, we're, we're five episodes deep now, and I've been talking about this uh, man uh, in a, a serious fashion now for uh, more than a year and change, and still I can't pronounce his damn name. Uh, but this now, is... We're going to keep screwing that up. Yeah, absolutely. Keep screwing that up for you, sure. you just got to know it. Um, this is, I think, and I may say this more as the series goes on. I believe that this is my favorite of the novels. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of things that I had put on this novel in my memory that it turns out actually were parts of the following novel, The Queen of the Damned. Did you have that same sort of conflation in your own memories? Um, well, it had been so long since I had read this one. Um, and it's a really different read at 39 than it was at you know 17 probably when i 16 17 when i read it i was i was probably about actually i was probably about 15 or 16 when i read it um and i did i think that i have definitely in my mind combined events from those two books in particular um i don't i think that i've kept tell the body thief a little more separate in my head because there's new character. Well, hell there's new characters in queen of the damned. I don't know why my brain did that, but my brain definitely did combine some things. Um, I just, one of the things that struck me right off the bat is how much easier of a read this is for me. Um, Lestat's voice is just easier to read than Louis. Louis is so careful and he's so, he's so cautious about, it's almost like he's being cautious with his word choices, whereas Lestat really doesn't have any choice but to be himself. He can't help but be who he is. He even says that. I mean, he he a lot of Lestat's life has been trying to be other, trying to be what he imagines good is supposed to be. But in the end, he always resorts to uh, sort of like the true version of himself. He has an ethos. He has a morality. He has a code. Um, one of the things that struck me, first of all, let's talk about the TV series for just a second here. And if the TV series does not first, the, the Christopher and Anne are working on, if you're just joining us uh, in media res here, uh, Christopher and Anne Rice are working on a television series. And they have said that the first season of this series is going to focus on the vampire Lestat novel, not interview with the vampire they will get to those events but it will probably be season two maybe even season three depending upon the way that they write it out if this series does not start 
with the fight with the wolves, they are doing themselves a great disservice. And I know we've already seen a teaser from Christopher that the first episode, the title of the first episode as he's written it, the script is The Wolf Killer. I think that's got to be the name of your first episode. And the the moment that we meet Lestat should be fighting those wolves, becoming a man, that that moment of of triumph, the beginning of his struggle and and through that you could even play that that fight out over the course of an episode if you wanted to and have flashbacks to his family life so that you get the full relationships the the adversarial relationship with his father the fact that his brothers and his father sort of um you know thumb their nose at knowledge his mother is this secret scholar you know all of those sorts of things you could give all of that color in flashbacks while he's fighting the wolves and have the climax of the wolf battle be the climax of the first episode. And I think that could be incredibly artful, but also like what is, people are the people who haven't read the books are going to come to this series expecting fangs and blood right away. Right. And I Absolutely. think, I think you should tell them this series is much more than that. There are vampires coming. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> well, and people who, people who haven't read or, or people who only have been exposed to interview um, really have no idea what the character of Lestat's really like. And I think that that's something that's really interesting and kind of struck me as I was reading, reading this again, was that you, he's so filtered an interview through Louis's eyes. So you see this version of him and it's not really at all what he's truly like. And so I think that, I think that, people who have only seen that film will be really surprised by how much there is to him. And, and when we see softer sides of him and when we see um, vulnerability from him and things like that, I think that, but I totally agree. I think that that would be an awesome place to start. I think it would be starting with an action sequence right off the bat. Um, and that will tell us very quickly too, how they're going to incorporate the narrative voice. You know what I mean? Yeah, it well and I was I was thinking that would allow you to avoid it at least in the short term. Like you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to start a series with the idea of uh you know we're reading a novel or he's uh, dictating this to his secretary or you know recording it as a podcast or anything like that. You wouldn't have to right. do any of those things as we've talked about. You could just go straight into the story and flash back and forth from that moment with the wolves to his family, which again is a narrative that I think like Game of Thrones and other these high level adult series have um, Handmaid's Tale, for instance, they give you no frame of reference in that show when they go back and forth to the time before Gilead and and the present, quote unquote, in right. the narrative. They just do. They flash back and forth. And you pick it up as a viewer through context clues, through the dress and the mannerisms and the different characters that appear, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, Westworld has done this to a great degree. It's even sort of like sort of the fun of the show is figuring out who is when, not what just the who hell is where. Going on. Right, exactly. So <laughs> So again, I don't think there's, there's any problem with that. I think, I think viewers are used to that, but it occurs to me that by jumping into the story like that, you could completely obfuscate the, the need for, at least in the short term, that third person narrator as if he's dictating it like we have in the novels. And also you could avoid, at least for the short term, 
the question of whether or not he's actually going to be a rock star in the TV show, right? Because we don't <laughs> we don't have to meet the band. We don't have to know what time frame that the Queen of the Damned storyline is going to take place in. They don't have to decide any of those things yet. They can push all of those creative decisions off and just get the audience into the character of Lestat, which is what this series is going to hang on. And I think... Um, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Liam Liam Neeson showed us in uh, the classic film Wolf Fight that, uh, you know, starting with a fight with wolves is not a bad way to start and end a movie. <laughs> I have not seen Wolf Fight. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, so the actual name of the movie is it's the, the, the name of the movie is The Grey, but it is it it's largely like i think there's like a i can't even remember now what the what the uh what the inciting uh incident is but i think it's like a plane plane crash or something but liam neeson's character is effectively on the run from a pack of wolves for the course of the series of the course of the movie and oh my uh, god and so like at the beginning of the movie there's a bit of fighting with wolves and at the end of the movie there's fighting with wolves and all through the middle there's some fighting with wolves and i feel like yeah, you could totally just turn the gray into the story of Lestat. And I think that would work. I think that'd work just fine. I think that theoretically they could tell this whole story in basically in like in sequential order. They can tell the story like in sequential order without even, you know, like you said, you don't have to address, you don't have to address Queen of the Damned until you get to Queen of the Damned. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. telling it kind of telling especially with i think this this book you totally can do that you just you just start with start with it in you know in sequential order and tell it tell it as a true clean narrative it would definitely change things to lose the the fact that you know all of these novels except for the first one basically are lestat the character of lestat whispering in Anne's ear i mean that's the way that she describes it herself and that is the way that they come across when you read them it, it, that's a fundamental difference that the TV show might have, but it occurs to me now when we're thinking about this framing that that might be the way to go, you know, in a true adaptation, not um, just simply copying it to a different medium, but actually adapting it to that medium might be the answer uh, to get us started off on the right foot. Uh, let me tell you something though. Let's jump in and, and, and move ahead a little bit here. There's a, a moment in chapter two uh, in the audiobook that I was really struck by. Lestat says, I became a little crueler for what happened. He's talking about when he, when he comes back, um, after the, this is after the wolf fight, his, his father and his brothers, uh, have, um, uh, punished him. Oh, this is, this is actually, I think, before the wolf fight. This is when he runs away to join the acting troupe. Um, and he is caught and returned and they beat oh, him. Oh, yeah. You know, and he says that, that, it darkened him um, and he, and he went crueler, but he also became more useful. He talks about lording it over his brothers and his father in his head, that he was the one that was providing the game that everyone was eating. He would sit at dinner and sort of smugly to himself. He, he didn't talk about it, but in his own mind, he thought I provide for this family, no matter what they think of me, you know, or no matter how little they think of me. Um, I, I don't know about you. I have definitely had that feeling of like, smugly helping someone else <laughs> absolutely absolutely you're like oh you have to take my help and smile and be happy about it jerk <laughs> how did those early scenes play out to you in the village to me it, i didn't remember all of the cruelty i remembered that he hated his father i remembered that that was a very adversarial relationship because that of course plays out with their relationship during the time of interview with the vampire but right 
what I didn't recall was that the, the, the way the brothers were there, I didn't recall the fact that his mother stayed so aloof. Gabrielle was so aloof until after her change. They don't, they do have a relationship, but she withholds so much of herself even from him. It's really, it's a lonely existence that he lives, at least as he describes it. Absolutely. No, I had forgotten. I would pretty much not remembered any of the beginning of this, to be honest. Like it was like reading it almost for the first time all over again, because I had not it's like a, the, those early scenes, those early, his early life, aside from like, obviously the wolf fight being like a really vibrant image that was created in my head. Like so much of that just kind of slipped through, which is interesting because like, you know, we all have different backgrounds and childhoods. And when you like, I didn't, it wasn't all like sunshine and moonbeams in my life when I was a kid. And so I would have thought I would have almost paid more attention to that. You know what I mean? And held on to a little bit more of that and been able to relate to a little bit more of that than I, than I guess I did. Um, but a reread of that, he did feel very isolated and it makes so much sense that he as a character spends so much of his time searching for companionship. Um, I think that's something that it makes that makes so much more sense to me upon rereading this, like his his longing for companions, his longing for someone to share his existence with and and that longing for someone to understand you on a really deep level. Yeah, absolutely. That's boy. And what's sad is that that is basically the story of every vampire in this series and yet they end up hurting each other so often and and walking away from each other and not understanding that they're all striving for the same thing um the character of nicholas and their relationship one of the things that i wondered about and that i thought about in during this read was assuming that what if magnus had never decided to take lestat and so their lives had continued well, first of all, you have to assume that his father and the brothers never would have came and found them in Paris and, and just beat them and taken them back home anyway. But I'm assuming that that might not have happened. Like maybe Lestat was too old at that point and uh, they just would have chalked it up to a lost cause. But if Magnus hadn't taken them, would Nicholas have destroyed himself anyway? It was Nicholas. I mean, obviously he had a destructive personality. He has an addictive personality. Probably if he was, you know, a real person today, we would chalk him up with all sorts of diagnoses right but, but could he could he have had a happy life there in paris with lestat i think that i think that he would have i don't think that <laughs> i think he would have met a poor end regardless i think that i think that nicholas's soul was not meant for this world you know what i mean like i I didn't remember him being so his soul being in so much pain. You know what I mean? When I reread that, when I reread it this time, I just, I felt so deeply sad for him. If that makes sense at all. And no, absolutely. I, I, and you, I think you're totally right. He completely has that sort of addictive personality. It's addict. It's like that, that longing for, for, um, attention again, like Lestat attention and connection, and then the fear of losing it or the fear of it changing, the fear of it developing in a way that leaves you behind. Um, 
I think that that would always drive him to sadness and that would always drive him, you know, to self-medication of whatever variety that would be. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I, I imagine that, first of all, I think about what a loss it would be for us not to have the next, you know, 200 years or so of Lestat's adventures. But, uh, I, I imagine that Lestat would have lived a very exciting and eventful life anyway. It probably would have died a young man, maybe on a battlefield somewhere, gotten caught up in a revolution or something. But, uh, I think you're right. I think, I think he would have lost Nicholas anyway. And he blames himself for Nicholas. And I think so many of his later follies fall at the feet of his shame about Nicholas and his blaming himself for Nicholas. And I, th- oh, I think absolutely. about, you know, his, the, the desperate move to create Claudia to save his relationship with Louis, uh, Louis, the, the, the way that he treated Louis, I think so much of that is because of the way that his relationship with Nicholas went. Now, some of it, it turned, well, at least, and here's an interesting point because many of the things that we read in this book, um, contradict directly the things that we've read in interview with the vampire. Yes. Now, some of that you can just chalk up to Louis saw it one way and Lestat saw it a different way. The obvious actual real world answer is that this book was written quite a few years later and uh, the character of Lestat and the idea of the world, I think the overall universe of the vampires was vastly different for Anne than it was when she wrote Interview with the Vampire. But the, the reason in, in Rez, the reason in the story is that one of the reasons anyway that Lestat presented himself so differently to Louis is that he makes promises and vows at the end of this book to Marius. And that's sort of a clever little out for Anne. But how do you think that plays? That's something that I had not really, again, reading this as a kid, reading it again, you know, in my early 20s, I didn't pick up on those things. But it does occur to me that the Lestat that we come to know as the series goes on I don't think even would have been cowed by Marius's vows. And when you think about it, he clearly wasn't because he wakes up at the end of the 1900s and decides to form a rock band and tell the whole world about vampires. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't. Yeah, he breaks. He breaks the vows anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, so like, I why? Mean, why would he have held so closely to them that he was such an like? That was a big point for Louis. Is where did we come from? What is the origin? And Lassat could have given answers to that without implicating Marius, without implicating those who must be kept, without even breaking his vows. Anyway, I just feel like that was a cheap answer for Anne at the time. And I think the overall character of Lestat that hangs very false. That was one big part in this story that now sort of bums me out. And I hope they can, again, in the adaptation to the series, I hope they really do all of that better. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about how much time had passed from interview to this book. And you're totally right. Pardon me. Sorry, guys. Um, you're totally right that that does that does weigh into a lot of of the discrepancies. But I'm so enamored with the idea of of perception and how we all see we can all experience the same thing. And if you and I had the exact same experience, the story that we would tell could be vastly different, just depending on how we interpreted it or how we felt about it emotionally, how it affected us. Um, and I've always 
I've always, always, always been so enamored with that idea. And I actually really love the idea about thinking about, you know, some of my favorite books and films and things and what it would be like to take it and spin it and see that story from another, through another character's eyes. Like you could write an entire new Harry Potter series from the perspective of Draco Malfoy. You know what I mean? And I think that I've always been so in love with that idea that that's something I've just, maybe that's allowed me to forgive anything that made me uncomfortable. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. The characters of Louis and Lestat and their differing views on immortality and their own place in the universe, I think, are going to, when we look back on it, likely form the backbone of the series, I hope anyway, as far as like the overarching, what is this series about? Um, however, I wonder how you establish that well. <laughs> when uh louis is not actually in the series for at least a year maybe two uh now one right. thing you and i have mentioned in the past and uh i think ann actually mentioned this in one of the q a's an interesting idea might be to have because there is a reference in the books that that they look quite a lot alike an interesting idea might be to have the same actor play nicholas and louis uh to come back into the series and i i I wouldn't be opposed to that. I I've just been rewatching actually um the series Deadwood and uh there is an actor uh I want to say Timothy Timothy Oliphant but it's not Timothy Oliphant it's um uh Delahunt I think is his last name. Oh but, uh, uh Garrett, Garrett yes. Delahunt. Yes, Garrett Delahunt. I love him. He plays uh one character in the first season he plays the the man who ends up killing Wild Bill Hickok. And then in the second season, he comes back as a completely different character, vastly different um, look to him, but also like a totally different personality. And they're, they're not related in any way in that series at all. They just that actor was really good and he fit both roles and why not use him again? And I didn't have any problem with it at all. They look so different that it, that it wasn't an issue here when there are story references about the two characters um, being very similar in appearance and also holding a similar place in Lestat's heart. I think that, I think that'd be okay. Uh, and that would be a way that you could begin to make those separate philosophical arguments, even in the first season, even before Louis comes on the scene. So that is something that has occurred to me. I guess Nicholas Mike can play that role. What did you think about? Let's talk about Magnus for a minute. And his okay. appearance into the story. Uh, I had forgotten the hints that he was coming. There are, you know, Lestat sort of feels a presence a few times before he gets there. Uh, yeah. And then when he actually attacks him, it's one of the most violent encounters maybe in the entire series in some ways. The the imagery anyway that it draws up, um, it feels very much like a rape. The the concept that this is all against Lestat's will and that that's the way that Magnus wants it is very, very clear to me and was it or was very clear to me in my reading this time. Um, what did you think about Magnus? Um, I found him far more interesting this read than I've ever found him before. So I always just kind of thought of like in my memory that it, I thought of him as kind of a quick sort of throwaway character that came and served his purpose and then left. Um, but this, this read, I really felt 
like I, I was able to kind of analyze the character in a little bit of a different way and sort of understand a little deeper and probably that's just aging and things like that. Understanding a little deeper about like why he was, you know, ready to bounce. But I had, I really hadn't, I really hadn't held on to a lot. Like I said, this one didn't stick in my brain very well. And I didn't really, I hadn't held on to a lot of memory of that character or connection to that character. But this read, I felt like I understood him more, if that makes sense as yeah. well. Like I, like, I just really felt like I, I got, I got what, why, why he wanted to, to go into the fire, why he wanted to die, why he wanted to end it. I felt like I understood. I even sort of understood why he chose Lestat in a different way than I did before. I think. Uh, now see that has always made sense to me. The choosing of Lestat always the, the thing that was interesting to me in this read, and I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but for people who have not read the more current novels, we do learn a bit more about Magnus in the most recent novels. And that's all I'll say there, but it occurred to me on this reading that, um, I had not questioned in the past, like who Magnus was or where he came from or why he felt so desperate to, to die right away. Uh, I didn't really seemingly, or I don't remember ever being curious about his backstory, but in retrospect, uh, now knowing that we do get a little bit of uh, answers about him in some of the more recent stuff, I, I did feel like, boy, that's just like a huge thing that she left hanging there. I, I, I'm intrigued that I haven't heard more or thought more about him in the past in this series uh, because we, we don't know much about him and then he's gone. He just, he chooses uh, Lestat. He is, um, he's almost, um, you know, a, a deus ex machina. And so he, he just appears, he's plot, li- yeah. a plot thread and then he's gone. He is, he is a, a useful tool to inject the vampiric blood into the storyline, you know? Um, let's, let's, skip ahead and talk about the coven a bit, because I, I really think that this is going to be the major storyline for season one will be the ongoing sort of rivalry and ramping up until there is a full on confrontation between the um, coven of Les Innocents and um, Lestat and, and eventually Gabrielle too. There was an interesting moment though, in this one, uh, Lestat is having a long interaction when when they first sort of grabbed him. He's having a long interaction with Armand and the old queen. I love it. There's some really good poetry in there. But in particular, Lestat has a line. He says, and uh, by the way, I'll use again The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, the film, the, the series, the TV series, has a tremendous amount of lines pulled directly from the book. And they are brilliant from someone who I'm beginning to read that book right now myself, actually. And I'm sure for people who have read it in the past, those moments really hit and were wonderful. I hope that when applicable, Christopher and the other writers are using Anne's own original words. She's done some really good work and some heavy lifting here to begin with. So this is one, for instance, I never lie, at least not to those I do not love. What? A beautiful thought and how true. <laughs> I never lie, at least not to those I do not love. Um, I mean, how most people, I think, lie more often for those who, lo- who we love or to those who we love than to those we hate. Why? We show our 
full selves, our open, raw selves to those that we actively dislike. You know, our enemies always get uh, the full brunt of us, but we try to contain and hedge and qualify for those that are actually on the inner circle. I just love that line that I had to write it down. That's a great one. And, and, and I say you do that for two, you either depending on what kind of person you are. And I guess maybe the situation you kind of do that for two different reasons, either to protect the person that you love to protect their feelings, to protect them or, or to protect their perception of you to protect the way that you are seen by them. And one, I feel like, is a lot more selfish than the other. Yeah. And one, I think, definitely pertains to our boy Lestat far more than the other, too. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, I like the fact that in, in the last episode when we were or, – or two episodes ago when we were talking about the relationship between Armand and Louis, uh, especially after Claudia is killed, it takes Louis years to figure Armand out and to figure out that he actually doesn't have any answers. You know, he doesn't know anything more than anybody else. It, this, this wisdom is an act that he's learned very well because he's had 500 years to work on it. Lestat figures him out in like five minutes. They're in right. they're, they're down there in the coven. And within minutes, he has totally understood. This is just a boy. He's a boy from a time when curiosity was illegal. Basically <laughs> he, he, is a child of the end of the dark ages. Armand is simple. That, that is who Armand is. That's all that he is. He is simple. And it turns out to someone born in the Renaissance, basically like Louis, that is, uh, or not the Renaissance, but the enlightenment, uh, like Louis, that is mysterious. It seems to have the wisdom of a sage or a mystic or something like that. But in fact, he's just simple. His answers are black and white always, you know? Oh, for sure. I, I, I had, um, well, I won't, I won't skip that far ahead, but there's, God, there's so much of this freaking book that I'd forgotten about. And I'd forgotten so much about Armand, Armand's story. And at the beginning of Armand's story, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, but I don't want to skip too, too far ahead yet. So no, that's okay. You can go there. We're, 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 we're talking, we mostly, uh, we tend to go through characters rather than uh, direct plot lines. So that's okay. That's Let's true. talk about Armand. And of course the beauty is, and I was reminded, we got a whole book. We got a whole book about Armand that we can get to down the road that is just focused on him and tells his story in full and revisits that early part of the story that again, you're right. I had sort of forgotten that, um, you know, that tribal Eastern European origin uh, for him that we don't, that we only get a glimpse of. Yeah. And you get a taste of it in this, in this book. Um, but it's, I don't know. I just, I, I had forgotten. I just, I had, for, I just had forgotten so much. I never dreamed that I would have forgotten so many details, but th there's so much in there. She creates such a lush, amazing world, you know, and we've met, we've, referenced uh handmaid's tale a couple of times and i have to say i think that that is the best adapted series in action right now period hands down so you had and, read that book as well oh yeah oh god yeah i read yeah absolutely i mean i think we all should <laughs> i had i had um, never read it before i'd heard of it obviously i'd never actually sat down and read it and uh right after we 
finally I caught up and, and finished the second se- uh, second season, worked my way all the way through. And, um, when I got done, I immediately went and bought the audiobook version. There's like a anniversary edition that's narrated by Claire Danes, which is oh, wow. really good. And it contains some bonus material at the end. There's apparently, well, I'm not going to say what the bonus material is, but anyway, uh, yes, there's some extra stuff there too. But the, um, the narration is really, really good. Claire is excellent. And of course, that story is told sort of in a diary form, uh, you know, a, a, first person narrative like this so it's uh, it lends itself very well to audiobook i find um but you're right it is the the job because there are lots of things changed character ages uh the timeline on when the narrative takes place versus you know the beginning of gilead i think is a little bit different in this in the show than it is in the novel but all those things make perfect sense for the adaptation to the screen it gives me so much so much faith that this is going to work. <laughs> you know, right? I think that you and I love this so much. If they screw it up, we're going to be so pissed. And so I, that, um, especially with that, because the, the world there, that, that novel is very short and it's a very, that she Atwood kind of paints that world very quickly and with a very, um, a very, rough brush you know what I mean whereas Anne has created this it's like a tapestry it's like a woven tapestry of of a universe you know that's in line with like you know Lord of the Rings and things like that and so um there's so much to work with I just I just have so much faith now though that the things that I worried that might be cheesy or like or like campy in a bad way are gonna be able to be done well if it's approached the right way and if it's cast well. Speaking of casting, do you have anyone in mind for the old queen? I thought about, uh, that was one of the characters that I thought about in this novel. It's sort of a short role, right? She wouldn't, you'd really only need Uh her. If you're going to have like, let's say you have 10 episode or 12 episode seasons, you could have that role only be three or four episodes and, or two, even you could have two in the coven that feature the queen and and then she dies. Okay, fine. That's the end of that. So that could be high level stunt casting is what I'm saying. I mean, you could really, oh, for sure. you could go and get somebody for that one. And I, when I think of the fact that Anthony Hopkins continues to show up to work on Westworld uh, on occasion, uh, you know, they, I don't know, man, like I really, I wonder how high they might go for that one in particular. Um, and I just feel like, Lestat's father as well is one that I feel like you wouldn't, you need him for maybe two episodes in season one and then a handful of episodes in season two. And yet you could bring in somebody like a Charles dance, for instance. Dude, I was literally about to say Charles freaking dance. And wouldn't I, he be amazing? I you not. Wouldn't he be I amazing? Li- that, that's, yes. He would be freaking perfect. Like th- that was coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I thought about that a few times when I was reading this. I thought I, I heard those, you know, I read those scenes where he's being berated, uh, where, you know, his father is sitting at one end of the table, sort of looking down his nose at him. And I thought, boy, Charles Dance does a pretty good, uh, pissed off, disappointed father, doesn't he? And, and he's got oh, that. Yeah. He also can play that scruffy past their prime nobility, I think very, very mm-hmm. well. You know, obviously in Game of Thrones, he's at the height of his powers for most of that show. But um I, I was thinking about some of his work. Did you see um 
what was the Dracula movie that he was in? It was not very good, but he was good in it. Uh, it's like Dracula Resurrection or something. It was the most recent. Oh, I have not. <laughs> it's not, it's not good, but it was the most recent version where they tried to redo the story of Dracula, and he plays sort of the ancient vampire that's stuck up in the cave that Dracula comes to as a bargain in order to save his people. The the barbarians are coming to take over Transylvania and, and Dracul makes a bargain to save his people. That's the basic plot line of that movie. Um, Charles dance plays the vampire and he's great in it in the beginning, especially he's sort of like old and decrepit and, and you know, they got him in heavy makeup and everything. And I was just thinking, you know, I would love coughing up a lung blinded, uh, you know, sitting off in the corner of that dark room in that Southern plantation in season two, berating Louis and Lestat because they won't ever come see him during the daytime and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think that would be amazing. Uh, we could cross our fingers and hope. Um, it, it occurs to me though that the relationship with Armand here is going to be super important and uh, even more important because of the like the interconnected nature of this casting. So who you cast for Armand has to have great chemistry with Louis and Lestat, but also they have to have great chemistry with Marius. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Well, and age, age is going to be really tricky here. Yes. Do you go for like, this is obviously this is going to be, we hope fingers crossed a multi-season series. So do you go for someone a little younger and risk them aging up a little too much for you. You get, or you end up in a Walt situation from lost. You know what I mean? Where, I mean, and granted he was around 15. Our mom was around 15. So you're not going quite as young. So you're not probably going to, you're past puberty at that point, but still, you know, like the, your physical appearance can change so much between 15 and 20 even. And so I think it's, it, they're going to have to cast probably someone in their, I'd say early twenties, as as young as they're going to be able to go. Yeah, no, I think you're right. You got to get them after their last growth spurt, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody like um, I mean, not this casting, but I think about Andrew Garfield for um, uh, Marvel and Spider Man. No, oh, yeah, no, that's the that. old one, right? That's the old. Who's the new Spider Man? That's the not new Garfield, Spider-Man. is it? Whoever the new kid is, yeah, you know who I'm talking about. The one that, that was just in Homecoming. Great. He's great. He's wonderful. A uh, British actor, and he'll basically look that way until he's about 35, and then he'll start looking like however he's going to look until he's about 55. And I feel like you can get away with that with Armand if you cast a kid who's 20, 21, 22, maybe, and he'll look the same for this season, for next season. Uh, heading into the third season. And by that time, you can move it all into the present day. You're doing the Queen of the Dam storyline. And from there forward, Armand's playing like the young businessman. So you could really change his look and work with that if you wanted to, to justify some of the aging that's going to happen with him, uh, you know, naturally because you've, you've cast a younger actor. So I think they can obfuscate some of that away. But again, that even more important that you cast the right actor for Marius so that when we see these pairings, that those relationships emphasize and um, sort of add to the differences in age and the differences in power structure and all the different things that play out with these different relationships. That's so just, it's going to be super, super, um, uh, super, super uh, important. I think also to convey the length of the relationships, mm. you know, I mean, 
some of these characters have known each other for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so um, that that adds in another layer that you, you're you not always dealing with as an actor, as a performer. You have to very quickly establish, you know, when when like the first time we see Pandora, when she shows up, you know, that she has this huge, rich history with Marius. And um, I think that with with Armand in particular is another one, especially with casting, you know, you're talking about a younger, a younger actor, someone that can convey those layers of, of character, those layers of, of relationship that are going to exist there, especially with, especially with a character like Marius and Armand, especially with a relationship like that. Let's talk about Gabrielle for a minute. Uh, First of all, the, I had forgotten that, he didn't exactly intend to bring her over. It was a moment of weakness. It was a rush decision and uh, it was one done out of love and and selfish desperation in many ways. Um, However, and I'm trying to think of maybe some of the more recent vampires that he's made. Uh, Maybe I'm forgetting about somebody in some of the later books, but of his early creations nicholas and louis and claudia and gabrielle uh gabrielle is the only one that should have been a vampire (laughs) oh yes agreed she she was meant to be a vampire right absolutely absolutely and yeah it suits her so and i think this is gonna be a magical moment we've i think we've discussed this before that but that moment of transformation when you can take the actress that you have sort of played up with sickness and with age and you can wash all of that away and just showcase her in her beauty and in her element um and in the power of vampirism i'm i'm very excited about that i think i think it's going to be something that normal people people who don't know these stories are going to be very excited about they're going to be talking about that moment when he turns his mother um i think i think that's going to be something that character by the way again and it doesn't play out so much in the course of the series as a whole like the difference between Lestat and Louis does just because Gabrielle doesn't have as much to do with Lestat in the years to come but Gabrielle has such a fundamental fundamentally different understanding of the world than her son which again makes their relationship very interesting if you go back to the childhood when they both had the love of learning the shared love of learning and sort of the um united not hatred but like resignment against the rest of the family and yet she was still her own person and even in vampirism they're joined in in this new bond this new life this new immortality and almost immediately she's pulling away from him it sort of it, it blows my mind and it kills me for lestat it sort of hurts my feelings for him you know oh absolutely because he feels i mean i think she's I think she's the kind of woman if she if she were a modern woman she would not have had children. Yes. I honestly think that about Gabrielle. I don't think would never have been married either. She was Yeah, no not at all. I don't think she was enamored of being a mother. I think that and I think that that was super hurtful to Lestat when when she did start to abandon him, when she did start to pull away from him, when she did, she was longing for her own adventure, which is what she's, she had always wanted. She felt trapped in that, 
village. She felt trapped in that marriage. She felt trapped by her responsibility. You know, she longed for books and adventure and, and education and all the things that a woman in that time period was not permitted to enjoy, really, you know. She's a character I did not like when I read this book originally. I did not like her. I found her very cold. I found her, I found her mean. I was very, I was upset that she was hurting Lestat's feelings. You know, I was having all those reactions to her. And when I read it this time, I had a totally different, a totally different opinion of her where I could see, I could see him being, you know, I could see him being selfish and clingy and I could see her needing space and, and, and that they had two different objectives. You know what I mean? And so I just, I had such a different appreciation for her this time around. You know, what's interesting. I think that, I think that is just, that just comes with age. I absolutely agree with you. I always felt like she was selfish and cold. She is still cold and she is a distant oh, yeah. person. She yeah. is, she is even a bit selfish, but nowhere near as selfish. I would say probably in the end as Lestat is. And yet we love Lestat. And so, what it turns out is it's just that moment where, and again, I think we have discussed this maybe off the air instead of on this podcast before, but it's like that moment of realizing your parents are people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and you, I think in this reading, I realized, ah, Gabrielle is a person and she's not only a person, but she is a person that like Lestat has not been allowed to make very many choices in her life. And in fact, has been allowed to make fewer choices than even Lestat has. So she, she is a very sympathetic figure to me in this. And yes, he saves her and brings her into immortality, but she owes him nothing. And she, I mean, she owes him love and and familial affection and she has that for him still, but they are two very different people. Their roads are two very different roads and she doesn't have the answers for him. She cannot fill the hole in his soul that he is, um, you know, desperately seeking to fill. I do feel like there are, and and of course, you know what was what was Gabrielle's life like uh, in the 1600s, et cetera, et cetera, before before we meet her in the story. But there are moments reading it, I'm like, we'll be the mom, you know, like to take control of this situation a little bit and stop your son from some of these bumbling um, mistakes. And there are moments where she, again, I think selfishly allows herself to play almost the damsel in distress even uh, and, and rolls along on Lestat's adventure only to then sort of like wash her hands of him when things fall apart a little bit and go, well, I told you this was a bad idea. Well, if you know it was a bad idea, maybe put the brakes on earlier on. Anyway, I think there is some of their bumbling uh, misadventures there before they part ways that I, I think she could have helped him with. But overall, I agree with you. Room. You're think right. About what you've done. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, and, I, I know that's obviously uh, different. What do you think about the? And I mean, I think we've, we, I think we've been, um, I think we've been conditioned that any sort of overtones of sexuality between them, I don't think it's going to play. I don't think it's going to play very controversially after watching the uh, the Lannisters screw each other for seven oh, seasons yeah. on Game of Thrones. Yeah, okay. The Lannisters uh, really took a. Uh, 
familial relationships to the next level. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they made a lot more things seem not weird at all. Like the fact that he's sort of got an edible thing for his mom. The fact that the, the blood transfusion, you know, the, the giving and taking of blood is sort of a sexual thing. Uh, none of that's, I, I, I don't think going to play weird in a world where, uh, in a post game of Thrones world. I think, I think you're right. <laughs> post game of Thrones. I love it. What, what about this? What about their parting argument, though? Do you, do you you remember this? So when they part ways and he ends up going into the ground before Marius finds him, to me, I feel like, again, there's some really good poetry there for one thing. But also yeah. the – and I know it hit me when I read it you know, at 13 or whatever, 14 years old when I was reading it then. But it hit me even now about the nature of that mother – uh, son relationship or father son relationship where you do have to get to the point where you push them away. You it's, it's required, you know, and this is playing out for them again, even though they're, you know, vampires now immortal. I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was effective. And in many ways it is what is the final straw for Lestat that puts him in the position to be found by, to be caught by Marius to begin with. You know what I mean? I don't know if he, if they had continued together, I don't know that he would have cried out to Marius in the way that he did. And if he hadn't, I don't think Marius would have come and found him. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that that, that had to happen, that, that, that had to happen for him to become him to become the next version of himself. You know what I mean? I think that that had to happen for her to become the next version of herself. You know, these, and I think something that's very relationships change in this vampiric world, just because I was your mother when we were alive, doesn't mean I'm your mother as a vampire. Mm. And I, I think that, I think that, because it's we're no longer talking about people. We're no longer talking about well, people. We're no longer talking about human beings anymore. You know what I mean? Like they've become something else. They've become something almost, in a way, godlike. In a way, immortal. In a way, inhuman. And so I think that to me, I was able to kind of see and understand the change in the relationship that she felt that maybe Lestat didn't feel, you know, he, it was hard for him not to look at her as his mother sometimes. Whereas I think she stopped seeing her sometimes as her, as her son. Yes. No, I think she, I think she really stopped seeing him as her son. Maybe even as soon as maybe even before he becomes a vampire, before he even leaves for Paris, perhaps that, that she sees him more as a compatriot and a, um, you know, a fellow sufferer, <laughs> but right. definitely by the time they are together and in Paris and, and dealing with Nicholas's craziness and then the, the coven, it's clear that she sees him just as a peer there. Again, maybe that is the reason why she never steps in and sort of takes charge or sort of like um, leads the group, so to speak, uh, because she doesn't see herself as the mother figure at all. Um, anyway, what a compelling character. And I, again, what a great role. There are so many excellent roles in this series. I cannot wait to see some of the names that you and I don't even know yet 
but are oh, going to yeah. become household names. You know, I think about, I didn't know Charles Dance before. I, I mean, I've seen him in one or two things, but I didn't think about him as a great actor until Game of Thrones. Uh, the, the same thing with um, Lena Headey. Um, you know, I didn't think about her really. I had seen her in other things. She was in the Sarah Connor Chronicles. She was good in that. She was in the 300. She's good in that. Oh, she was badass in 300. Yeah. I loved her in that. She was, she was actually really on my radar as a lady as a lady fight choreographer and a lady fighter, like she, she was on my radar because of 300. She had Mm. been kind of, I'd been paying attention to her for a while. Well, and she's amazing in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, both dramatically. And also she's got a lot of great action in that series too. two seasons worth of of great stuff there. I think she did a better job than her game of Thrones co-star in the, uh, which one did um, the queen of dragons play Sarah Connor in the, uh, what was it? Genesis Terminator Genesis. I think, um, interesting sort of, uh, thing for them to chat about in the off scenes there. Anyway, I just, I, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see this cast list. That is the thing I think that I'm most excited about is to see who the names are that are going and who the faces are that are going to be, you know, filling my imagination with these characters from now on out. Um, I've got a long history of Lestat in my head, but it, if this is done remotely at all well, then these characters and these scenarios, this version of it is going to lay a, a stamp over not only mine and yours, but you know, the mainstream as a whole, this is going to be the portrayal of these characters that people remember and, and that pop culture as a whole imagines. So I'm excited about it. Um, let's move forward a little bit. Why don't we, and talk about, let's get into Marius. Uh, it's oh, a much, I love Marius. He's so wonderful. First of all, it's a much longer section of the book than I remember it being. Um, it, it, we get a lot, we get his story, we get, uh, he tells Armand's story. Um, you know, we, we get a lot of download there. It reminds me very much of, uh, and I think this comes a little bit later in time, but when Anne writes the, um, the witching hour, the first novel in the, um, Mayfair witches series, there are, you know, chapter after chapter after chapter of the Talamasca files, basically. And this to yeah. me feels like her first swing at, Hey, let me tell you the history of the world. <laughs> Uh, and she does a great job of that. She does it again in Queen of the Damned a couple of times because we get the story of, um, you know, Cayman, we get the story of the twins and we get all of that, those downloads as well. But this one through Marius's eyes and mouth, I think is really well done. And what a great parallel between him and Lestat. And this is also something that I had overlooked, uh, sort of in my memory, but it sticks out in this reading. The fact that they both come from, specific times in human history where um, sort of the scientific method and the idea of facts and truth and uh, reality have risen to the top. They are ascendant and the concepts of um, suspicion and, um, you know, I want to say the occult, but that's not what I'm thinking of, of, of uh, superstition. Those are, falling away religion even and faith are falling away a bit to a degree and because of that i think marius and lestat are always going to be kindred spirits kindred spirits and and that chemistry is very they they are men cut from the same cloth i think yes i think that 
their souls recognize each other. Mm, yeah. So you said it so much more artfully than I did. That is exactly what happens. That is exactly what happens. It's the reason why what... Marius responds to him for the first time in a thousand years. He's, he, he answers the call for someone looking for Marius and it is not coincidental that it is Lestat. Absolutely. I love what you said about, um, that like even religion is falling away. I, um, I marked this passage, um, this little exchange between the two of them where uh, Mary says to be godless is probably the first step to innocence, to lose the sense of sin and subordination, the false grief for things supposed to be lost. And Lestat says, so by innocence, you mean not an absence of experience, but an absence of illusion. And he's an absence of a need for illusions, a love and a love of and respect for what is right before your eyes. Mm. I love that. I love that. And as someone who's a bit agnostic, I really, really love that. I love that it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of like people who have a lot of faith, but don't necessarily have religion, if that makes sense at all. Um, I don't know. I just, and I love, I love the way she writes for Marius. I love Marius's words out of her pen. They just, he just, I love that character so hard. Yeah, I do too. And again, I can't, I cannot wait to see who they, who they put in that role. I am very much looking forward to, to loving him for years to come and, and to seeing some of his story play out. I'm, I'm very hopeful that, that we're going to get lots and lots of Marius, um, for seasons and seasons and seasons. The nature of, you know, one of the things that occurred to me to his idea and in a way, in some ways, um, Lestat's is a little bit Taoist. Marius is is more closely Taoist than Lestat. Lestat is almost a um an an aesthetician. You know, he he's he's about aesthetics more than he is about anything else. Beauty more than truth. That's a really even. good description. You know, he he is um it, it it is it is uh that is the highest good for Lestat. But for Marius in particular, that concept that he's talking about, you know, the to to stop believing in God is the beginning of um, your path. I'm badly paraphrasing it, but there's a part of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, there's a chapter of the Tao Te Ching that talks very specifically about um, you abolish uh, wealth and you will uh, get rid of greed. If you abolish morality, then you will get rid of sin. Um, you know, and and the that's a little bit of wordplay on the one hand, but also. I don't know. There is a fundamental um, philosophical ethos there that I think there's something to, and I think it's very appealing. Absolutely. And and the idea that you pair things away to what they want to be, you allow things to be in their natural state. Um, you know, a Taoist would call it Wu Wei, the, uh, the, the unshaped uh, block, uh, the uncarved block. Anyway, I think that's exactly what Marius is talking about there. And if you think about it, that is largely what Lestat is trying to do in the end with putting on the vampire rock star show. He is trying to be what he is in its ultimate expression. And he just wants to stop lying to those he loves. In this case, the entirety of the human species, you know, he loves humanity and he, as he says to Armand in the beginning there, I never lie, at least not to those that I, that I do not love. And, um, He's trying to roll it out. He's trying to expand the truth. Now, I think he's wrong in it, which is why we get into all the trouble. But he was 
again, it's about pride when he wakes up Akasha, right? When he goes down after Marius oh, tells yes. him the whole story. And he's he, Marius even says that others have tried and they end up with their skulls smashed or, uh, you know, he's had to save them or something like that. Marius has told them these stories already before he goes down there and tries with the violin he knows full well what will happen he i think he is surprised when it's inkle that's actually going to grab him and choke him to death or whatever but at the same time he also knows that this is a possibility if you if you walk in front of the gods and you speak to them they might respond you might not be happy when they do um anyway what what a what an amazing character of marius and the unfolding of a, a rational man who you know, doesn't believe in the mysterious that's literally captured by a forest God and then told to go find out what happened <laughs> to the secret underground world of vampires. Like what an amazing story. <laughs> you can make a whole TV series just about that guy, right? Like we don't never mind Lestat. Let's just start with Marius. I would watch it. I would watch that. <laughs> um, I, I do hope that we get, by the way, a lot of this story with the old gods. I know it's going to be expensive. These are basically all different sets. Uh, you know, I, I'm. It'll be interesting to see how they can um, contain some of that sprawling narrative. But at the same time, if we're not introduced to Mayel there, for instance, uh, for him to show up later in Queen of the Damned storyline, I think that's a shame. If we're not. Um, introduced to the concept of the elder gods and the idea that that blood sacrifice from Akasha and Inkle was, you know, continued in different parts of the world, even though they didn't really know what the origin of it was. That's the thing that I love is that the way that Akasha and Inkle had set things up was replicated even after people forgot the why, <laughs> you know, even after Akasha and Inkle had stopped speaking, uh, the 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 ones who kept them they were they would debate it they were like yeah I, I bet nothing would happen if we threw them out in the sun it it had passed the time of memory already and yet they maintained the rituals i find that interesting and i think it is very true to humanity we have maintained these things and we do that you know there's the social experiments where you can um, have everybody in a waiting room and when like a bell rings everybody raises their hand you slowly rotate people out of the waiting room and eventually you don't have to give them the instructions they'll just do it because they watch everybody else do it they'll train themselves to do it and not know why you know um, that is showcased here in the worship of the the vampire the vampire gods and I hope we get that I hope we don't cut that all out I understand that it is less important to the central narrative of Lestat. But at, at the same time, if you're telling the sweeping narrative and you're going to go into all 14 of these novels, eventually, um, then the history of the vampires is part of it. You know, I hope they learn, they learn a good lesson from game of Thrones, which I realized production costs have a lot to do with how this all played out, but they had so much source material to work with and they burned their way through that so quickly that now, I mean, and that, that's not to say I don't, I'm not totally into it and totally enjoying it still, but I do feel like they're, they're floundering a little bit, not knowing exactly what's going to happen next, where they're going next, because they, they ran out of source material. They ran out of the guide and granted they're not, not going to do that with this because the source material is already there, but I just hope they don't rush through it so quickly. I hope that they, because I do think that there is enough 
enough interest in this world, enough to hold your interest in this world, enough to keep your attention, characters that you're going to want to know more about, characters that, like you said, if you don't introduce this character now, it's going to be weird later because you didn't, you didn't, we didn't get the first introduction. And so they don't matter as much if they, if they show up later, or you have to combine them into two or three characters. And it just, as, as I think as a, a, a reader, a reader of, of books that have been adapted, that's something that always drives us crazy is when it's like, I know, I know you have to make these, I know you have to make these changes and I get it, but just, just think about what the reader is going to want to see too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And thinking absolutely. about t- taking your time and really, really painting the pictures, like, like literally the section where Marius is telling the story of, of Armand um, to Lestat in this in this novel I just it's so freaking beautiful and I was able to like literally picture it all in my head in this amazing fashion that like so few writers are able to to paint such pictures you know what I mean oh she she is truly gifted like and and that absolutely stuck out in this read the incredibly descriptive the way that she can capture the feel of a city or a time or both mm. uh, it, it is especially when you've been there that's the thing that strikes me uh we've talked about this before but spending so much time in new orleans and listening yeah. to our descriptions there um you know traveling to paris and when she's describing the city again it just feels like it i've never been to san francisco other than the airport i guess but i would imagine her descriptions there are are um hitting home too Right here towards the end, it's it's uh, chapter 61 in the audiobook. Marius is talking to Lestat about Armand, and there's a line that I thought was really wonderful and poignant, and I think, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think based on the time frame, it might have something to do with Anne's own personal life, too. Marius says of Armand, I can tell his stories forever, but they are no substitute for life. Um, it, it, Two things there. He's, first of all, sort of, um, sad about the fact that Armand was taken away from him specifically, but then also sad in general that Armand, because of his own actions, ended up becoming a vampire, uh, in becoming a vampire period and having his life sort of his natural life ended. To me, yeah. I think that line, that line is a lot about Marius and Armand, sure, but I think it's also Anne saying goodbye to the ghost of her daughter. Uh, the, her the loss of her child her daughter was i think four or five years old when she passed away that is such a motivating factor for the novel interview with the vampire it was the reason why she began to conceive of and think of the idea of vampirism and immortality at all that's where that character of louis and the melancholy and the you know, treatise on death that interview with the vampire is that's where that comes from. And here is her turning the corner. Um, we can be sad. We can mourn the loss of the life, but living in the stories is no good to her or to us. Uh, there, there is a next chapter to this story. And so we're going to move on with it. And I, I found that really poignant in this reading. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And, and that too, like, there is a, a a beauty in the memories mm. and and that also memory is sometimes a really pale shadow of what the experience was 
Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Uh, you know, I was listening to some science show on TV, half watching it, half listening. The kids were um, in the living room and, you know, I was cooking dinner or something the other day. And they were talking about the fact that uh, memories, if you get more than even just a few days from the event, they're basically completely false because every time we run over a memory, our brain is reconstructing the events from the data dump. And so every time they're filling in, the the brain is filling in holes for you. You don't remember exactly what color the shirt that Annie was wearing that day when y'all went and got ice cream was. So your brain paints the shirt for you. It just fills it in. And eventually almost everything in the memory is filled in stuff. It's, it's stuff that is likely, probably, possibly true, but is not necessarily actual memories. Does that make sense? And yeah, it's how a Xerox copy fades. Yes. If you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And they talk a lot about that sort of thing in, um, in like, in a lot of true crime podcasts I've listened to, the serial in particular, where they're talking about like asking someone to reconstruct a memory from years ago and how how challenging that is you know because the usually the only way that your brain will hang on to some of those things when that much time has passed is if something significant happens so after the wrap-up with marius we are thrust into the postscript which i don't remember it uh in my memory it wasn't a postscript i was thinking that this was all still part of the novel I recall there being so much more rock star too in this book. There is very little rock band at all. There is very little rock star Lestat. There's not even that much talk about the concert and the music and the ongoing, you know, fiction around the vampire Lestat. All of that really comes later. It comes in the Queen of the Damned book. But, but what we do get though is most of the characters coming together. We get the, uh, presence of some malevolent force uh we we're pretty sure we know who that might be and then the book ends on a cliffhanger what do you think about that i thought it was another hundred pages long (laughs) (laughs) so like literally when i got to the when i got to the end i was like what the hell just what what the hell like i i had completely put probably the first I don't know, well, probably the first hundred pages of Queen of the Damned in my memory into this. So it kind of it felt sort of abrupt to me. And I was really confused. I'm not going to lie. Well, there's, that's there's, my fault. There's so much that happens in Queen of the Damned. Like we said, there's, there's several info dumps where you get the different ancient characters' storylines. But then also there is a little bit of buildup until sort of like Akasha's plan is revealed. And then there is, of course, the denouement where all of the other characters come together to try to stop her plan. So like there's like four phases of that story. And I could absolutely see in my head, too. I think I had conflated some of that. I had pushed like the whole first act maybe into the Vampire Lestat instead of um, the Queen of the Damned. I... I don't know. I don't off the top of my head. I don't know how far apart the books were in release. Uh, the Vampire Lestat came out in 1985. Let me click here and see when the Queen of the Dam came out. 1988. So, man, I could not imagine waiting three years to hear the end of that. Oh, I'd have been so pissed. Like I think about that a lot. About like, well, I did that with Game of Thrones. I was like, well. I finished the first season and I was like, well, I'm not going to get tricked again. Um, and so I was, I grabbed those books and I read them all. And then on, 
And then I got ahead of the, now I'm ahead of the, you know, now we're ahead of the source material. And now I'm still waiting on that same damn book everybody else is. And it's so frustrating. Yeah, I am. I am very glad that that won't ever be the case with this TV series. <laughs> you know, like there is, there is basically no way that they uh, they won't last fourteen seasons. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure that that won't be the case. So, I, I think that's about all of my thoughts on this novel. I am really excited to get into the next one, and we are going to try to do it a little faster so that we can also get to the movie, which I don't think that I've ever actually seen. I know that we talked about this. I'm pretty sure that I've never actually seen Queen of the Damned. I think I watched uh like half of it once right after it came out on video. I know for a fact <laughs> I didn't go to I I knew it was going to be bad. Uh, I didn't like the trailers. I didn't like the trailers and so I refused to go to the movie theater to see it. I was so mad that they hadn't made a true sequel to Interview. Um and so years later I was like, "No, screw you guys. I don't want this version." But then eventually I did get into the um I did watch it on video, I think, but, uh, or maybe I didn't finish it. I don't know. Anyway, I'm excited to get to that. So we got to get through the book first. Um, but before we get to that, do you have any sort of final thoughts on, uh, this book? Uh, just that I, I really, I love Lestat way more than I used to. Like I, forgive him for a lot of, and I understand him a lot better than I used to. Um, and this was so much easier to read and so much. Uh, it's the, I really, and I think it speaks to, Anne has said this before too, like she, Lestat tells, speaks through her. Lestat tells her, whispers in her ear and tells her stories, you know, basically. And I think that that's one of the reasons why this is so much of an easier book to literally read and get through than interview was i mean it just it's just easier because it's her natural voice it's her voice i feel like in a lot of ways and so it's so so it was so nice to kind of curl up with this book again and 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 hear the voice that we're going to be hearing the rest of the time you know uh interview is kind of an aberration that's really outside of the kind of standalones and such you know most of these novels are told from Lestat's perspective Lestat's voice so it's it's nice to kind of settle back in with that voice and know who's going to be telling me a story for the next couple of books that I'm going to be reading yes yes I love it um all right so you get uh, you get to reading if you're listening to this get to reading um the queen of the damned uh or check out the audiobook if you'd like to uh that's what I'm going to be doing and uh, we will be back soon with an episode on that book uh, i want to take a minute um ashley i don't think we've done this yet but i want to highlight a few uh reviews of the show uh, even though we've only done four podcast uh episodes uh, some people have uh, taken the time to go and review us uh, this one comes from i believe this is philly diva from the united states uh, five stars right on time is the subject line. Uh, and Marcos, uh, it says down at the bottom. So I'm going to assume that it's a he, uh, excited to stumble into this podcast. I watched the interview with the vampire last night and decided to check if there were any podcasts discussing one of my favorite movies. I love the enthusiasm of the hosts as they lovingly discuss the best bites of Lestat news. I didn't even hear about the impending series, so that was a real treat. Thanks, guys. I'll be listening. Take care. Marcos in New Jersey. Uh, why is your name Philly Diva then, Marcos? Uh, I appreciate that. Um, this one comes, <laughs> this one comes from Klaus's cousin. 
Oh, I love it. This one comes from Klaus's cousin uh, from the United States. Uh, five stars, entertaining and informative. I got into reading Anne Rice after the release of the interview with the vampire movie back in 94 and remember getting the first four books as a gift. I read through them quickly and read her other works like The Mummy, The Mayfair Witches, etc. She was certainly a gateway author for me into other stuff like Stephen King, Nancy Collins, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman, etc., Though I haven't read any of her stuff in quite some time, I do look forward to hearing uh, these guys discuss the Vampire Chronicles books in chronological order. Love listening to this podcast at work or in the car. Well, thank you so much. We will try to have more Aww. of them for you to listen to. That's very sweet. Uh, and then I actually, I believe this is a second message from Marcos. This wasn't a review, but we got a message on our Facebook page, which by the way, you can find us. We've got a group on Facebook. Uh, search for Articulate Coven or go to ArticulateCoven.com uh, and you can find us there. Uh, Marco says, hi, I just wanted to drop a line and mention that I'm relieved you came out with a new episode. <laughs> uh, imagine, imagine your relief after this one. I thought maybe you guys had stopped doing the show. There's podcasts on iTunes for Stephen King and Clive Barker, but as far as I know, you're the only one doing an Anne Rice show. We are. We're still, as of yesterday, we were still the only Anne Rice specific show in uh, Apple Podcasts. After, after listening to your previous episodes, it got me to purchase the last two Vampire Chronicles books, Prince Lestat and Realms of Atlantis which speaking of we got some news for you here in just a minute um also if you're a fan of classic gothic soap opera dark shadows the laura parker novels are pretty darn good too have Ooh. you have you read those the laura, Par I, laura parker I, but i loved dark shadows that I was did too. delicious and delightful did you watch the um so my entryway to that was not the original series which was in um rerun still when we were kids but my entry point was the nbc remake did do you remember that they made like one season of a remake I, in the early 90s i don't think i watched that i watched old episodes with um shout out to my buddy Cor courtney payton who introduced me to almost everything awesome and nerdy that i love when we were uh, teenagers in choir together um my buddy courtney watched the old episodes of dark shadows and so she i would watch those with her got real into that Nice. Yeah. I loved the combination of, of the, the horror elements, which I was big into. Even as a kid, I didn't, I didn't really like, I've never been liked to be scared, but I've always loved like that universal horror movie aesthetic. The, the creeping oh, yeah. dread, the, um, you know, the dark sets, the, the smoky uh, atmosphere and everything. I loved all of that type of stuff. And Dark Shadows had all of that in spades. It also was a good soap opera. So if you, if yeah. you were like us, both of us, I think, liked Days of Our days of our lives back in the day same deal oh hell yeah except you got vampires too that's that's uh, we're down for it we are down for it um speaking of uh news they mentioned uh the the newer lestat books uh prince lestat and uh the latest book realms of atlantis there is a new uh vampire chronicles book coming out this fall as a matter of fact and i am searching for the title of the thing right now the newest book is going to be called Blood Communion, A Tale of Prince Lestat, and that will be out in October, I believe, of 2018. Um, yeah, this fall sometime. So about this, about a year after the release of the sequel to The Mummy that came out last year. Uh, this one Anne wrote by herself. So it does not, uh, this is not a collaboration between she and Christopher, but it is a continuation of the storyline for the whole Vampire Chronicles and, and especially the latest couple of books, Prince Lestat and Prince Lestat and the realms of Atlantis are, are sort of right on top of each other. And I think this was, is going to be that way too. Um, you still have not read the most recent series, have you? 
No, I'm real behind y'all. <laughs> so <laughs> what, um, what is the I, last I book that you remember reading? Uh, did you get into the like the Merricks and the black and golds and the Blackwood Farms I, I, and those? I read, I think Blood and Gold might be the last one I read. Mm. Yeah, uh, the Blood and Gold is uh, that's the Marius. Marius. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good one. Um, the um, anyway, it'll be interesting to see. I know the in particular Merrick and the uh, Mayfair books are not part of the deal for the TV series. Um, and I don't, I think there's one other book along with Merrick, one of the, of the other vampire books that's not included. I in did the read deal. Merrick. I definitely did read Merrick. I do remember that one. Well, if you're a fan love, of David Talbot, like I am, it's God love that it's very easy to go. I do too. And it's very easy to flow into that whole series. I know a lot of people don't really like that sort of side story, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. I love the Mayfair witches. That's, that's great guys. If you've ever read those books, Take your, take your time through it. I will say this too, guys. I really am. I'm rereading and, and getting caught up on all of these. So if you want to do like book club along with me, just holler at me on our Facebook page and I'll be happy to like, we can kind of all read together if you want. Absolutely. And if, if you'd want to do, if, if you want to start even like a, a comment thread about a book and, and then, you know, we can go from there and everybody can sort of add into it. Uh, that'd be, that'd be awesome. We could do that in the group. Check us out. Search, uh, Articulate Coven on Facebook. We are available in Apple Podcasts. We're in Stitcher Radio. We're on Google Play Music. We are not yet in, um, the Google Podcast. That's a, a new thing. If you're a Android user, uh, although if you're listening to the show, I'm sure you already uh, are finding us in your favorite podcast app. But for new listeners, I am very excited to get us in there. We're going to be soon so that people can just tell the Google Assistant to uh, play the Articulate Coven and and bing, bang, boom, that'll happen. So that's coming soon. Uh, but uh, as Ashley said, you can find us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And we will be back soon with more episodes for you. Folks, I appreciate your patience and uh, we definitely appreciate uh, Ashley's time. Thank you so much for joining me uh, each and every episode, ma'am. Always a delight. Thank you, sir. All right. Until uh, the next episode, um, you continue being your own authentically dark little self (laughs) and enjoy your own little devil's road. Uh, This has been the Articulate Coven. And until next episode, we are your hosts. I am Joel Sharpton. I'm Ashley Wright-Eiler. And this is the Articulate Coven. Thanks for listening to The Articulate Coven. You can join our community on Facebook by following the links in the show notes or searching for Articulate Coven on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at articulatecoven.com and share us with your Anne Rice-loving friends. <laughs>